Hello, and thank you for joining us on Rocky Mountain Institute's podcast, where we'll explore emerging and innovative pathways to transform global energy use to create a clean, prosperous, and secure low-carbon future. I'm Denali Hessen, Program Coordinator and Program Marketer for Global Climate Finance at RMI. Today, I'm here with Paul Bodner. Paul is Managing Director at RMI, where he oversees programs in global climate finance and U.S. subnational action. With a background in finance and public policy, Paul previously served in the Obama White House as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Energy and Climate Change at the National Security Council. He was also a key architect of the administration's international climate policies, culminating in the Paris Agreement. We're also excited to hear from one of our other colleagues in the climate finance and industry programs, James Mitchell. James is a manager and climate finance practitioner here at RMI. His work on climate risks and opportunities has been incorporated into the strategies of some of the world's largest funds and financiers. His research and thought leadership on decarbonization spanning industries has been featured in top publications around the world. For the last two years, James has been working with leading financial institutions to develop the Poseidon Principles, the world's first climate alignment agreement for financial institutions. These principles establish a simple, transparent way to integrate climate considerations into lending decisions to incentivize shipping's decarbonization. And we're here because the Poseidon Principles officially launched today with support from Citi, Societe Generale, DMB, Danske Bank, and many others. Congratulations, James, and great to have you both here. Thanks, Denali. This is Paul. And this is James. And we're here today to tell you about this exciting thing that James has been cooking up for the last two years in conjunction with a lot of colleagues, as Denali has mentioned, as well as some of the largest banks in the world. And this is a truly path-breaking initiative. And I say that as someone who's been working in this field for over 20 years. So today, we will both celebrate and dissect what the Poseidon principles mean for the global shipping industry, as well as talk about how they set a precedent in the world of finance as we drive to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and maintain a safe climate on the planet. So first, uh, let's talk about shipping. You know, as Denali mentioned, I was involved in the negotiation of the Paris Agreement. And as great as that is, it has two important blind spots. It does not address emissions from the shipping sector or from the aviation sector, because the Paris Agreement is really an agreement among nations, and it's based on territorial emissions, which is the emissions that occur on the territories of the signatory countries. And for ships and for planes, where that's not the case, Paris kind of throws up its hands and says, you deal with this other UN bodies. And as we'll learn today, the UN body that governs the global shipping sector, the International Maritime Organization, decided to take up that charge. So James, let's start with shipping. Why is it important for climate? Is it something we should be concerned about? And how did that sector end up taking up the baton from Paris to deal with the climate challenge? Shipping is really important. So emissions-wise, shipping is about the same as Germany. So it's about 2.5% of global emissions. So really serious. At the same time, it's outside of the Paris Agreement. And it recently came up with its own agreement called the IMO Initial Strategy. That was only last year. So a sort of few years delay from the Paris Agreement. The sort of point of that agreement is that the IMO wants the international shipping industry to reduce emissions by 50% by 2050. So 
the IMO. And by the IMO, you mean there's an office building in London overlooking the Thames River where every once in a while retired admirals from different countries get together and discuss what they should be doing together to control pollution from the shipping sector to make sure, I don't know, that ships don't crash into each other and, and do other things of mutual interest. Is that right? That's exactly right. I actually used to cycle by it on my way to the office from where I lived in uh, southwest London. The IMO basically exists to solve these global challenges, many of them environmental. There's actually a special committee for those. It's called the MEPC. We'll just avoid all these acronyms after this. But basically, it exists to solve things like air pollution, things like water pollution, things like climate pollution or sort of climate uh, greenhouse gas emissions. That's what it does, basically. So that's the committee that came up with this uh, this initial strategy last year. So the Paris Agreement commits nations to ratchet down greenhouse gas emissions in the coming decades to reach net zero levels by the second half of the century. What did the IMO agree to do? So the IMO actually set up a, a strategy to figure out what it should do. So the first part of the strategy was to establish, you know, where are we going? And that is 50%, that, the thing I mentioned earlier, 50% by 2050. What it's now doing is it's entered a, a sort of a few years of collecting data. So basically collecting data on this massive global industry, there's about 50,000 or more ships. They're sometimes as big as four football fields. So really, really big things, basically floating power stations. It's collecting data from all of them. With that data, it will then decide, you know, what are the best policy tools that we can use to actually achieve this goal by 2050? Well, that sounds prudent and bureaucratic. So you have these 50,000 power stations floating around the world, and you decided to try to figure out how you could capture all of them in some kind of solution that would actually drive the sector's emissions down. And you chose the leverage point of finance. Can you tell us why you did that? Yeah. So um, shipping is really hard to, to really achieve anything outside of you know, IMO policy, which, as you've described, takes a while. Shipping, as I view it, is a global governance challenge. There's 50,000 ships. They're owned by many small ship owners. So just these three to five ship companies, you know, with three to five ships, you you don't have a lot of money to sort of hire a big staff and figure out how on earth are you going to comply with, you know, this 2050 goal, right? You're just trying to run a business and, and stay profitable. So it's really hard to influence ship owners because there's many of them. They're global. They're hard to influence. What that leaves you with is is just very few options. One of those options is finance. Finance is centralized. These are really big international institutions. Banks, you know, Citi, Sokgen, HSBC, all the big names that you recognize, many of them are active in shipping. They also have, you know, commitments to, to society because they are large, you know, multinational corporations. Okay, so the shipping sector itself sounds like is really fragmented, lots of small players, short-term perspective, right? Short-term contracts. And on the other hand, you have these large banks and uh, you're saying that a lot of the decisions about whether or not to finance ships lie with a small number of banks. Is that the case? That's exactly right. So the Poseidon principles are basically where, you know, the needs of banks as sort of contributors to society, as well as banks in the need to stay profitable sort of collide. You know, banks have a five to 12 year interest in ships, whereas their clients might have a much shorter interest in ships. So they're, they're the long-term player in the room. At the same time, you know, expectations are changing on, on banks and other big financial institutions. You know, in the 90s, you could kind of say, look, we provide financing and then 
whatever happens after that is, is someone else's deal. Today, that's changed, and that just really isn't the case. Today, you're expected to contribute to society's goals. That's a, that's a really big difference in just a couple decades. And that's where we created this agreement. It's kind of the, the intersection of these two things. So two years ago, you started approaching these banks and said, look, the world is changing. You need to skate to where the puck is going to be. And you have an outsized influence in this sector. What did you, uh, what did you propose to them? And, and, and what was the journey to the Poseidon principles today before we get into mechanically what they are? Sure. So it was a couple of years. Uh, so the first thing is, you know, I have a very different perspective than a banker, right? Someone who runs a shipping desk. Um, you have to recognize that from the start. And that's what we did. And so, um, you know, what matters is that they need to maintain profitability, right? They're a bank. It's sort of the, uh, the hardest edge of, of capitalism, right? You just, you are there to provide financing and to run, run a business. Um, what we had to show was that it's in their financial interest to do something um, about climate change. Basically, we, we know that IMO policies are coming down the pipe uh, right now. We also know that it's going to have a financial impact on the ships on the water today and in the future. We also showed that, look, here's how it's going to impact your profitability as a financial institution. So you should really think about this. And, and by the way, if you act together instead of alone, you know, there's some, there's some real benefits that you can, you can get out of this, both financially as well as environmentally. I should also say that we didn't go alone. We had some really key partners in, in working with this. Um, one is called the University College London. They're sort of the, the global experts in, in shipping and climate change and how to model those things. And the other one is an organization called the Global Maritime Forum. So they're a platform for bringing together different types of stakeholders, which is exactly what we did. We brought together all of these stakeholders over the period of a, of a couple years now, sort of built consensus around this idea of climate risk and climate alignment. And through a series of workshops, as well as presentations around the world in Singapore, London, New York City, Shanghai, Beijing, Hong Kong, many times over, you know, we came to an agreement that we should actually write a new set of principles called the Poseidon principles. And those should be sort of what governs this new idea, this, this climate alignment agreement. So tell us what exactly the Poseidon principles are and what they hope to accomplish. The Poseidon principles are the first global climate alignment agreement. So basically, um, climate alignment is it answers the question, are you or are you not in line with the IMO agreement? So that 50% by 2050 figure. So if you imagine today, you know, we're at, say, 100, and then in 2050, we're, we're at 50. Imagine a straight line between those points. That's what the shipping industry has to do, right? Has to stay under that, that emissions line. What we say is we will, what, what the Poseidon principles do is they actually establish a methodology for assessing that and saying, hey, here is how aligned I am with this line, this sort of line going to 50, and then also disclosing that. So not only do you know, the entire world knows where you're at. So you mean if you're a bank today, you look at your loan book and you say, hey, I have financed 50 ships in the last five years. And um, as the lender, those ships kind of technically belong to me in some way. And here's the carbon footprint of those ships, right? And that carbon footprint is 100, 100 units of emissions per year. And I need to crank that 100 down to 50 in the next couple decades. So that means that every year when I make new decisions about financing ships, I need to be financing incrementally greener ones. Is that how it works? Spot on. So what is the formula look like? Because I understand that you guys actually negotiated a really specific formula 
that governs this, which is what makes this a unique agreement, because it's not just about principles or disclosure. It's actually saying, hey, we have agreed that this is the quantitative way that we're going to measure whether we as banks are in compliance with this trajectory or not. How does that work? Yeah, so the Poseidon principles are a really robust agreement because it is the only way to create a global agreement like this. So the sort of challenge that we have is that you can't really become climate aligned alone as a, as a bank. You have to go together because if you try to go alone, you'll, you might just lose your clients. You might go out of business. You know, you might only get just one small corner of the sector that happens to be climate aligned. If you actually want to change an industry and be climate aligned together, you have to go together. And so the only way to create an agreement um, that can be that big to be truly global is that you have to make sure it's robust and it actually creates a global level playing field. And so that's basically what we negotiated. We said, you know, here is the, the best available information, best available data that, you can be, that can be used and verified to sort of understand shipping emissions. And then here is the best thing that we can possibly come up with, with all the global experts on how to um, how to assess that, how to measure it, how to, how to make those calculations, and then share just enough information with other banks, other signatories to Poseidon principles to make sure that everyone trusts each other. Because in the end, this is only a voluntary agreement. We can't make anyone do anything. Um, they're all sort of coercing each other inside of this agreement. Okay, but what is the, form, what is the metric that they're tracking? Signatories to the Poseidon principles track the carbon intensity of ships. And so we've come up with this way of basically saying, here is a global trajectory of carbon intensity. So that's sort of how many, ton, how many uh, grams of CO2 do you emit to move a ton of goods one nautical mile? That's sort of the metric we use. We've come up with a way to measure that year on year. So obviously that number gets smaller every year as we go towards 2050. You have to stay below that or you want to stay below that as a bank. You measure every single vessel in your portfolio, every single ship. You then aggregate that together and you come up with one number and you then compare that with what we call the, the required carbon intensity figure. That's what you get from that sort of carbon intensity trajectory. So how often are these banks required to report on that? Uh, banks will, will report this information every year. They'll report it both in their institutional reports like sustainability reports, as well as to the Poseidon Principles Association, uh, an organization we've set up to govern this agreement. And that will be published at the same time every single year. Oh, so this is a self-governing agreement. It's not just a bunch of NGOs that are going to hold their feet to the fire. The banks have actually decided to do that themselves. Exactly. So as of today, really, it's no longer ours. It's, it's actually the banks. And, and huge credit to those who have signed up and to those banks who helped us, well, who effectively wrote this agreement with us. There is now, as I mentioned, Poseidon Principles Association. It's governed by banks. And we as RMI, as well as our partners, University College London, are just expert advisors. So this will be governed. There's a whole set of governing principles, uh, as well as rules for how this organization is going to be run. Wow. So they've really jumped off uh, the, the high dive board here. Um, were there concerns that you encountered about the technology side of this, whether evolution of technology in, in ships would be evolving sufficiently fast to enable those who need ships to buy the right ones and for those who make money off of financing them to be able to make uh, uh, the requisite return? Yes. So concerns about technology and, and whether this you know 50% figure is even achievable were present throughout this entire process. In the end, again, credit to all the, all the banks who were involved in this, there was an agreement that they had a role to play in sort of ushering the shipping industry 
towards this figure. And the best way to do that was actually to create this agreement today, even before the IMO policies come out of the pipe in 2023. So what are some of the technologies that are in play for getting ships 50% below where they are today? So there's some smaller things you can do, and then there's the sort of holy grail of shipping decarbonization. The smaller things are like small technologies you can bolt on and save 5%, or um, you know operational measures you can take, like avoiding rough water or arriving on port just in time. The holy grail, however, is low carbon or zero carbon fuels like ammonia and hydrogen. Those are really what the, what the global shipping industry is going to have to embrace. Okay. So let's look beyond shipping. Do you think that this approach, which basically uses finance of assets as a choke point to drive the decarbonization of a complicated sector with lots of different owners and and actors, do you think that approach can work in other sectors? So we think that it can, and that's where we're hoping to go next. So can you give me a preview of what you're thinking? Right. So, um, you know, there's, there's some thinking we need, to, we need to do first, but basically we have this global economy, right? It's 78% of global GHG emissions come from carbon intensive assets, also capital intensive assets. What that means is there's going to be some financial sector involvement in these industries. We have definitely identified some sort of key traits of shipping and, you know, why this worked. And the next thing we're going to do is go and figure out not only just researching you know, on our own, but also working with many of the financial institutions we're working with already through the Poseidon principles to figure out, you know, where do you want to do this next? You know, we can write the equations, but fundamentally you have to implement. So why not come and do this with us? To give you an idea, though, the global steel sector is a hugely carbon intensive, pollution intensive industry. There may be maybe some, some potential there. There's definitely some potential in the utility sector. Obviously, the, the most, um, most carbon emissions come from, from power generation still, and, and most of that from coal. So some very clear opportunities to, to sort of take on a much larger chunk of global carbon emissions through a very similar agreement. And possibly aviation too, right? Because although there are a lot of airlines, they actually, a lot of them lease their aircraft. And so there are specialized companies that actually buy the aircraft and finance them, correct? Yeah, exactly. And interestingly, some of the same, you know, banks who are involved in the side principles also are involved in, um, you know, airline leasing or airplane leasing. So, yes, you know, we expect that that is a, a large opportunity. And um, fundamentally, it comes down to, you know, what we can uh, what we can identify as, as, as a possibility. Well, that's very promising. Uh, so last question for you, James, here at RMI, we specialize, I think, in the art and science of making something out of nothing in terms of the way that we try to weave together these industry collaborations that that are centered around our market-based approach to solving climate issues and accelerating the clean energy transition. You've clearly woven something big out of nothing from where you started two years ago with your observation about how uh, finance as a, as, a, as a sector could, could drive the IMO's agreement, even though there was such fragmentation, and even though um, the the shipping industry wasn't covered by the Paris Agreement, so it didn't benefit from all of the political attention and all of the kind of systems that the Paris Agreement has to offer. Having done this uh, with today's launch, what advice would you offer to others in this space who are trying to craft something out of nothing? Um, what are your lessons from this experience? You know, a little old RMI trying to get major global banks and the shipping industry to do something. That is a huge piece of leverage. How, how, how do you feel that you learned something that you can convey to others who are trying to do similar things? 
So the first thing I'd offer is don't be afraid to get your hands dirty, right? Often I think at think tanks or at uh, NGOs, there's some reluctance to engage with, you know, financial or industry players. You know, I'd say just go in the opposite direction of that. Go meet anyone who will talk to you and really figure out how does this sector work and why are people doing what they're doing? And then from that, say, how can I help them sort of broaden their vision or take the blinders off, right? They're clearly very good at doing their job and being profitable as a, you know, a banking institution or investor or, or whatever else that might, this might be. But how can you expand their vision and say, not only can you do that, you can do something else that's, that's incredibly meaningful and impactful. It's going to leave a legacy for you probably for generations to come. You know, that's where I think the, where the impact is. It's on the personal side because, you know, in the end, people run the global economy and uh, that's who you've got to influence. Thank you, James. Really inspiring story. And I look forward to having my goods transported by sail-enabled, hydrogen-powered, bubble-riding container ships in the near future. Thank you both for taking the time to explore this really exciting new endeavor. And congratulations again, James, on, on this accomplishment. And to our listeners, thank you as well. As a nonprofit organization, our work is made possible by bold partners and the support of people like you. We welcome your suggestions on what you'd like to see covered in future podcast episodes. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, as well as at rmi.org. Stay tuned for a new episode of RMI's podcast coming to you soon. And thank you again for listening.